Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the face of motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Carla Nomberg. She is a clinical social worker, mother, and author of four nonfiction books, including her international bestseller, How to Stop Losing Your With Your Kids, as well as her brand new book that we're talking about today, You Are Not a parent. Carla is also the author of the forthcoming How to Stop Freaking Out, the completely swear-free middle grade adaptation of How to Stop Losing Your With Your Kids. Welcome, Carla. I'm so delighted to be here. So you wrote this book, you say, for the millions of parents who are struggling with what you call the relentless belief that they're screwing up the most important work of their lives. How do we get like this? Thanks for asking that, Amy. So for the purposes of this book, I actually made up a syndrome because when you have a doctorate and you're writing a book, you're allowed to make up syndromes. And I would call that syndrome, we can call it SPS for short, or we can call it terrible parent syndrome, whatever you want. I define this as the thought, belief, or perception that you are a terrible parent when in fact you're not. So This is the point at which many of your listeners may be thinking, "Mm, actually, I am the terrible parent, though, right? Uh, That This syndrome is the thought, belief or perception that you're a terrible parent when you're actually not. But that lady on the podcast, she doesn't know me and she doesn't know that I actually am a terrible parent. And to those parents, what I would say to you is I don't actually believe there's such a thing as a horrible parent. I believe that there are many parents and every parent is there sometimes who struggles to parent the way they want to, to be our best selves. But in those moments, and even if those moments are really, really, really terrible, I'm still not going to call you a terrible parent. I'm going to say you're a parent who doesn't have the information, support, and resources you need. And when we frame it that way, instead of just labeling people and leaving them feeling like garbage, what we can do is say, what is the information? What are the resources and the support that you need? So shifting our perspective about other parents and more importantly about ourselves all of a sudden opens us up to this interesting conversation about how can we help you? How can we help ourselves rather than shaming ourselves? And why do we get to this place? How do we become parents who think we're terrible all the time? Where is this coming from? So part of it is evolution, right? It's the way the human brain was designed to work. The human brain is designed to always be scanning the external and internal environment for problems, for ways that we are doing things wrong. Because way back when, most of the problems in our lives were physical threats. I'm talking about woolly mammoth age, whenever that was, a really, really long time ago, right? Right. The toddler's going to get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. 
So, and the parents who had those brains that were constantly scanning for the threats, the problems, the mistakes, the ways in which we weren't parenting like our clan around us, which is also dangerous because if we're not parenting like our clan, they might kick us out. And then you're stuck in the middle of the tundra or wherever woolly mammoths live, I don't know, all alone, (laughs) and you're not going to survive. So we have this brain that is designed to look at the squiggly thing on the ground and decide it's a snake, not a stick. And now that translates thousands of years later to this brain that looks at a problem with a kid, a screaming kid, and decide there's something wrong here that I need to fix. And if I can't fix it, I'm a bad parent. Instead of thinking, oh, maybe that's just what happens when you have a kid and you're a human in this world. Sometimes you break down in tears, adults and children alike. And that operating system is still useful in 2022, right? Oh, there's a busy road there at the park. So I have to be aware. And that slide has rust on the side. I mean, our brains are still doing that and still using that operating system all of the time. Like it is our job to scan for danger. A hundred percent. So much gratitude to this brain that's like, oh, that cupcake at that birthday party might have peanuts in it. And my kid has a really severe peanut allergy. So like, good job, brain. Right. But there's a couple problems. One is the brain for most of us has taken it too far at this point. And it's not our fault. It's so not our fault. But we have lived through a pandemic. We have lived through more stress, anxiety. We're not even going to talk about the politics of the world right now. We're not going to talk about the dumpster fire. But most of our brains are just, they're on fire. They're like over triggered and everything is setting off this terrible parent belief. The other problem too is, okay, so we have these brains that are wired for comparison. Our brains are designed to constantly be looking at our neighbors, looking at the parents in our community and saying, what are they doing? And am I doing it the right way too? Because we don't want to be kicked out of the clan, right? We need them for safety. But the problem is now that our community is no longer the people who are physically around us. I mean, it might be who have, generally speaking, the same resources, the same opportunities, like the same context for parenting. Now we're comparing ourselves to those folks, but also to literally every single other person on the planet. Because thank you, social media and reality slash not reality TV. Literally in one of my darker moments, I was like, Gwyneth Paltrow has fish delivered to her house every day. (laughs) I'm a terrible mother because unlike Gwyneth Paltrow, I do not have fish delivered to my house. Can we discuss? I might as well be comparing myself to an alien, which is not to say that Gwyneth Paltrow is an alien. It's just to say that she lives in a completely different world than I do. So comparing myself to her is useless. And then I have to wonder, like, does Gwyneth Paltrow have fish delivered to her house every day? Or does the character Gwyneth Paltrow, as seen on Goop.com, have fish delivered to her house every day? I mean, maybe it doesn't even matter, but. Oh, I'm sure her staff does, right? Her staff organizes that. She's not like, I need a pound of salmon. (laughs) She's not doing that. She also doesn't talk that way. So it's both of these things, right? It's the way our brains were developed. It's the constant comparison and... This is going to sound a bit rich coming from me, but it's the overflow of parenting advice. Yes. Right. Current company aside, right? It's the rest of them. I know. I mean, obviously not me. (laughs) Yes, totally me, right? I am a part of this problem too, which is when we get this constant flow of advice, it perpetuates this idea that there is a right way to parent. If you as a parent are struggling or if your children are struggling, it's because you haven't found the right advice and followed it the right way. Okay. And that is baloney. And I think all of us parents, when we step back, we can think like, yeah, of course, of course, like being a mess and being a little chaotic at times and suffering and struggling and having a hard time is normal. But when we're caught up in the moment, we really have this idea that parenting should be easy and graceful and that if it's not easy, we're doing something wrong. And there's a huge opportunity to hear from 
experts who will tell you 10 different things. Your baby should eat the rainbow and also they should. And there's just a tremendous, like everybody has a microphone. I feel like my mother pretty much got her advice from her mom, her family, her tribe. And that nowadays the advice is like, we're taking all comers on the advice column. And like, they may be telling you 12 different things. Penelope Leach said that she was on our show a couple of weeks ago and she uh, wrote your baby and child like 40 years ago. And she said that she thought that was the problem now that instead of listening to one expert, you listen to all the experts. And it's such a double edged sword, right? Because what if your parents gave you terrible parenting advice or what if the way they parented? They probably did. Let's be honest. Right. But we're still here. So clearly they did good enough because we're alive and putting together complete sentences mostly. But I do think that for many of us, if you don't want to parent the way your parents parented you for whatever reason. It's great that there are other options, but the problem is I think we get so stuck in the idea that somebody else on this planet has figured out how to parent. And if we can just find that person and listen to them and do it right, we'll do better. And newsflash, none of us know what we're doing. Even the alleged experts, we don't know. We don't know. And and I used, you know, I wrote this book called How to Stop Losing Your (laughs) Temper. Not really, but you know, your ass with your kids. Use your imagination. And every time I lose it with my own kids, all I can think is, oh my gosh, if all of those, I wish, actually what I think to myself is I wrote the book on this and I wish every single person who has ever read that book or seen that title could be in my house right now watching me lose it with my kids because I want them to know that this is normal. And even the person who wrote the freaking book isn't perfect. We all need to hear that. There are three different reactions, Carla, that you say that we tend to turn to as sufferers of the terrible parent syndrome. When things fall apart, when we feel like we're failing, there's sort of three different bad coping strategies that we resort to. Yeah. So I think that very normal reactions when we are in this headspace of I'm screwing up parenting, I'm ruining my kids, the human brain tends to turn to isolation, judgment, and contempt. So let's talk about each of these. We all know that when our families are in a crisis, for the most part, we tend to kind of circle the wagons, drop the shades, stay off social media. You know, if we're at drop off or pick up at school, we don't really say anything. Oh, everything's fine. Ha ha ha. Because we don't want to look like the big mess that we are. Yes. Right. And what happens is then we come out of it. And when we're on the other side, we can finally tell this story of, oh, yeah, my kid was in the hospital or, oh, yeah, we had a car accident or, oh, yeah, whatever. But now we're okay. And that's the story that I feel like. And it's getting a little bit better, I think. But in general, moms especially, that's the story that moms are allowed to tell. It was a mess, but I fixed it. And now it's okay. And the problem with this, the isolation is there's two problems. One is when we kind of drop the shades and stay inside, it means we're not getting the support we need. We're not reaching out. And in those hard, chaotic moments, none of us can do it alone. None of us can parent alone when it's easy and going well. We definitely can't do it when things are a mess. The other piece, too, is that when everybody else does the same, when they shut their shades and stay home and stay off social media when things are a mess, it just perpetuates our belief that everybody else is doing fine. Right. Right. So isolation doesn't feel good for anybody. And I will say this a hundred times. I am so grateful for my friends who don't clean up their houses before I come over. Come over to my place, Carla, anytime. I'm like, thank you. Your house is a mess, too. I'm coming over now. My husband has also decided that we have friends. He calls them our croc friends because he will show up wearing his crocs. And I'm like, let's just wave our croc flag. Like we're doing the best we can. And right now the best we can is these hideous rubber shoes. Like that's the best we can do. So we're just going to own it. That's as good as it gets right now. Right. So isolation, judgment. Again, our brains are wired for judgment. Our brains are constantly working over time to make a call. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this safe? Is it not? And 
we just flip that judgment on ourselves so quickly, right? We are so fast to be like, yep, screwed that one up. Yep, I'm a terrible parent. And when we're really suffering, there's very little room for curiosity, which is we'll talk about in a minute, is the opposite of judgment. And being on the receiving end of judgment just feels yucky. You feel stuck. You feel disempowered. You feel confused. It's just awful. And we, mm-hmm. we judge ourselves like crazy all the time. So we got isolation, judgment, and contempt. And contempt I is the word I use for just... The way so many of us treat ourselves in difficult moments, we say the worst things to ourselves. I'm a terrible parent. I'm screwing this up. And can you imagine turning that around? Like, Amy, what if you called me up and you were like, I had a bad parenting moment. I was like, yeah, you are a horrible parent. Your kids are never going to be happy. They will struggle. You're not doing as good a job as all the other mothers. I would never say that to you. And I don't think you, I really hope you don't have a friend who would. Right. And yet we treat ourselves that way. And it's awful. We're talking to Carla Nomberg. Her new book is You Are Not a Parent. And we'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby's skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Can we talk a little bit, Carla, about the second arrow of suffering? Because I'd never heard this term before, and it really was a lightning bolt for me, what that means in respect to all this. Absolutely. So this is a story from the Buddhist tradition. And I just want to acknowledge that while I am not a Buddhist, I think Buddhist psychology is some of the most brilliant stuff out there. This story, which is attributed to the Buddha, I think is 
Brilliant, really brilliant insight. So the idea is that in life, first arrows come at us, they happen. And first arrows are the things that happen to us. You know, a kid fractures an ankle, we get a flat tire in the car, we get a bill we can't pay, a mother-in-law gets sick, you know, plans we were really looking forward to get canceled, a pandemic hits, right? These are first arrow problems. We cannot prevent them. Maybe sometimes we can prevent some of them, but if we prevent some, others will happen. We can't prevent them entirely and we can't control them. But often what we do after a first arrow hits us is we actually shoot a second arrow right at ourselves. And the Buddha called this the second arrow of suffering. It's when we pile on blame and shame and we take responsibility for these first arrows. We say, oh, my family is suffering right now and it's my fault. Instead of saying, my family is suffering because suffering is what happens in life. And I think there are a few reasons for these second arrows. One is we live in like this golden era of happiness. And I should use my air quotes around golden because, you know, we're constantly being told that happiness is the goal. There are so many books and podcasts and all the things telling us we should be happy. And if we're not happy, it's because we're doing something wrong. I don't understand this. I mean, happiness is a feeling and we can't actually control our feelings. We can influence them. We can do things that maybe, you know, like when I exercise, my mood is generally better, but sometimes then I get a call that my kid just puked all over the classroom and then my mood isn't so great anymore and there's nothing I can do about that. So there are things I can do to influence my feelings, but I can't make myself be happy. So there's this like global message that we should be happy. And if we're not happy, we're doing something wrong. And so then these first arrows come flying at us. And it's really hard to be happy when your kid's school just shut down because of a freaking pandemic. But we think to ourselves, oh, I'm doing something wrong. I should be able to manage this better. So that second arrow, the idea is that it's optional. And that's hard. I don't want to say to parents, I don't want any of your listeners to think I'm saying you should just suddenly decide not to feel bad, not to blame yourself for the stuff that happens in your life, because that's a really hard habit to change. What I'm saying is there are practices and ways, things that you can do over and over and over again, that eventually you really won't be blaming yourself so much. You won't have that second arrow coming at you. It really strikes me before we move to those solutions that the second arrow really ties into the idea of isolation. You are having a communal experience, the pandemic, but then when you become like, well, I shouldn't feel bad because we're actually not sick or I am really not doing the homeschooling as well as other people. You step away from the communal experience to kind of stab yourself in isolation. That is 100% accurate. And I think you hit on two really important points. One is... The isolation piece just contributes to this idea that I'm the only one who. Right. I'm the only one who didn't know how to make this choice. I'm the only one who missed the summer camp sign up. I'm the only one who doesn't have a kid who already is an expert at violin, whatever it is. We all have these I'm the only one who narratives in our mind. First of all, they're just not true. No matter what your story is, I guarantee you there's someone else on this planet and probably somebody else in your community who's also dealing with the exact same situation. You just don't know it. And secondly, whether or not they're true, they're not helpful. They're leaving you in this really stuck place of blame and shame and isolation. And I think the other thing that you pointed to, Margaret, that was so important is how often we parents take individual responsibility for societal problems. Mm -hmm. Right. So when the pandemic first hit, I had parents who were emailing me saying, so how exactly am I supposed to work a full time job while I have a three year old at home? Like, can you give me some tips for doing that? And I was like, right. 
No, nope, there are no tips because that's not a thing any human being can do. And if I said to you, here are some tips, that would imply that you should be able to do this. And it's not possible. So I think, again, this is where the isolation is really a problem. And for a lot of people, the job said, like, why can't you do this? I mean, they weren't just inventing that either. I had a whole thing at home of you're going to hear my kids sometimes on my spouse's Zoom calls. And sorry, because the other way is just not a realistic expectation. It wasn't even just like us putting it on ourselves. But when you have this sort of like meta emotional state, the second arrow you're taking on, like that school closed down and you're dealing with your kid having to learn at home with you next to you while you're trying to do your job is impossible. You're feeling guilt about that, right? Or overwhelm about that and then feeling bad that you're overwhelmed. That's the second arrow or the 18th arrow or whatever. You're pouring more arrows on yourself. But that does also, it occurs to me, make it a lot harder to deal with what's in front of you that you have actually have more to do than you can get done. And your kid is struggling and you're struggling that you feel bad that that's happening. It gets in the way of you doing what you need to do sometimes. A hundred percent. So let's think about this. You've got this first arrow that happens to you. Let's just say, you know, your car got a flat tire and you have a million places to go and you got a flat tire. Okay. That's a first arrow. So when you get all obsessive about like, oh, I should have stayed on top of this. You know, if we had more money, I could have had a second car. Or if I had actually gone and gotten my car to the hundred thousand mile checkup or whatever, this wouldn't have happened. Like you can find a million ways to blame yourself. And when you're doing that, you don't have the brain power to think about how am I going to solve this problem? Do I need to call AAA? Do I need to call my parenting partner? Do I need to cancel meetings? Do I need to set up a carpool for the kids? Like your brain can't go there. And so when I talk about self-compassion, which is really the antidote to all of this, one of the many benefits of it is that when we respond to our situation, whatever it may be with compassion, that gives us the headspace to think clearly about the situation, right? And when we can think clearly about what's going on, we can make better choices about what to do next. And sometimes the best thing to do is just take a moment, go sit in the corner and cry, right? Sometimes that is the, that's what we need to do. But sometimes the best thing is to make a phone call or to put your kid in front of the TV so you can problem solve or whatever it is. Whatever we do from that space of clarity is probably going to be more effective than the knee-jerk reaction we have from the space of I'm terrible, I'm a mess, and then we just do something. And it allows us to exist with some context in our lives, too, because this is the problem that I get into. Oh, my kids are in front of the TV and eating their fourth pizza of the week for dinner because I'm a bad person and a bad parent. But realistically, they're usually doing that because I have an ill parent or I have a bad situation, you know, that this is not actually a judgment on who I am as a person. It's a reality that is happening right now in my life. A hundred percent. Yeah. But I don't know why that's so hard to see. It's so hard to see because Nobody else is providing us with that context. And you use that word, Margaret, and it's such an important word. When the only context we have for making sense of these crazy making moments is seeing every other parent with their beautifully arrayed hot meal every single night that's the rainbow on the plate, that's what comes to mind for what a quote unquote good parent does. I will tell you one of the best moments in parenting for me was when my therapist said to me, hey, Carla, I know this woman and she's an amazing parent in all these ways. And she listed out the 27 ways, whatever. And then she goes, and this woman has never cooked a meal for her kids in her life. She orders out everything. She has everything delivered. It's all frozen. And I was like, oh, that's a thing. And it was such a beautiful thing to have someone I really trusted say to me, there are so many different ways to be a great parent and you can't be a great parent in all of them. I don't cook for my kids. I have a parenting partner, thank goodness, who cooks for my kids. But when mommy's on dinner night, the girls are like, yeah, boxed mac and cheese tonight. And I'm like, that's right, girls. That's because that's what mommy makes. Like I'll give them an apple or a pepper sometimes because I know they <laughs> need like vegetables. Sometimes. 
right? Sometimes. But I'm fortunate that I have a partner who can pick up the slack and I took them to swim lessons, which he doesn't want to do. And so to all the single parents out there, I will just say so much more compassion to you. Because what we know is you're not a bad parent. You are a parent who doesn't have the information, support, or resources you need. And sometimes those resources are external, right? They're money, they're health insurance, they're access to a high quality school system. And sometimes they're internal. And Margaret, you were mentioning maybe you're taking care of someone who's sick, maybe whatever's going on. And in that moment, you just don't have the internal resources to put together a hot meal and sit down at the table with your kids. And that's Okay. I have a friend at a pickup once for school, a drop off for school. We're the late moms. We were both getting there late. And her son said to her, Mom, I, I just can't stand that we're always late for school. And she just said in this very funny Southern way of her, she was like, well, honey, if you wanted to be on time, you needed to pick a different mommy than me. Her ability to just say like, that's not who I am, kid. That ability to separate, it just was mind boggling to me. I love that. And I just wish that voice could be in every parent's head because yes. learning to treat yourself with self-compassion is like learning to speak a new language in a few different ways. First of all, if no one has ever spoken this language of compassion to you, of course you don't speak it. And nobody, my parents didn't speak self-compassion to me because nobody spoke it to them because nobody spoke it to them. So I didn't grow up speaking this for the same reason I didn't grow up speaking Greek. It just wasn't a thing that was, you know, talked about in our house. And in all honesty, it's not a thing that was talked about hardly at all in Western culture until very recently, like maybe the past decade. And as you make the point in the book that self-compassion, we call it tweet tweet on the show, but <laughs> tell us a little bit about your first reaction to the term self-compassion and what you thought it meant. Oh, I thought it was gross. I was like, so not into it. I had reluctantly signed up for a mindfulness-based stress reduction course because I was trying to figure out how to be more patient, aka not lose my temper with my kids. I was like a hostile witness <laughs> in this class. I was totally not into it. I didn't want to be there, but I didn't know what else to do. And then they started talking about self-compassion and they were like, you need to send yourself happy wishes. No, you need to put your hand over your heart and send yourself happy wishes. And I was like, don't roll your eyes. Don't roll your eyes. You're in a public <laughs> space. People can see your face. Don't roll your eyes. Because I am very much a type A, get things done, take care of business. And I was like, mm, happy wishes are not going to solve that problem. But I also was realistic that everything else I had tried wasn't working. And so I tried to listen to what they were saying. And it turns out they were right. right? Like, <laughs> I still don't put my hand over my heart. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> it's so annoying. But look, I still don't put my hand over my heart because to me, that doesn't feel authentic or meaningful. And so I think one of the cool things about self-compassion is finding the way you speak this language, finding your own words. But what I realized is when we start to learn a language, you have to sort of say and practice the words before they're meaningful to you, right? And sometimes it's hard to wrap your mouth around, like it's literally hard to get the words to form if you've ever tried to speak this language. And over time, you just keep doing it until all of a sudden one day you hear that voice in your head in another language. And so I was like, fine, I will do this loving kindness meditation. And I will spend time trying to notice I was very bitter about it. I was very cranky back then. I still kind of am, but I will spend time trying to notice this contemptuous, rude, obnoxious voice in my head that's so judgmental. And when I started noticing it, I was like, oh my gosh, I treat myself so poorly. I don't want to do that anymore. And I tried to notice those thoughts and then respond to them with kindness. We're going to take a break. We're talking to Carla Nomberg, the author of You Are Not a Parent, How to Practice Self-Compassion and Give Yourself a Break. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... 
toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. So in talking, Carla, about this voice that is coming into our heads. I was having a terrible week last week and I said to my husband at some point, I just feel like I'm doing a terrible job. I'm being a bad wife. I'm thinking you're mad at me. And he said, oh, because here's what I see. Like you started your new course that you're teaching and you were busy with that. And he was able to reflect back to me like, that's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing something different. But I think that that voice that says we're doing a bad job is so shameful that we just hold it closer and closer rather than kind of letting it out and letting other people defy it for us. That is very true. And my wish for every parent is that we can have someone who will speak the language of self-compassion to us when we can't find the words. And I love that your husband was like, that's not what I'm seeing here. And he didn't just say to you, oh, no, I love you. You're great. Because you would have been like, blah, blah, whatever. Right. Or at least I would have. But he was actually able to offer you this reframe. And that's something that the more you spend time with and talk to people and open up to people and be vulnerable with people who can do that for you. And I'm not saying to every listener that you should go out and drop your story on the first person you see at the playground at pickup. Please don't do that. Please don't. Don't do that. But if you can find those people in your life who are going to show up and really listen to what you're saying and reflect back to you a different more compassionate, kinder version. That's such a gift. And it's really kind of this beautiful self-reinforcing cycle because the more other people do it for us, the more we can do it for ourselves. And then the more we can do it back for other folks. Before I became a parent and in my early years of parenting, I was so judgmental of other parents. I could judge any other parent for anything they were doing, how they were feeding their kids, which stroller they bought, like which activities they were doing or not. Because 
that was coming from the place of me judging myself a hundred percent of the time. And once I started practicing self-compassion and I stopped judging myself, I find that when I see other parents out in the world making different choices than I would make, my interpretation of what's going on for them is completely different. I see a parent struggling with their kid and I'm like, oh, that parent must be having a hard day. They must be dealing with a lot right now. I no longer have that voice in my head that looks at them and says, oh, they're a terrible parent because that's just not the language I speak anymore. I don't want to. I want to drill down on what self-compassion is a little more because it isn't just put a hand over your heart and sing yourself a happy wish, which sounds at once simplistic and impossible. But this is actually something that's much more concrete. There's a lot of research in this, and I want to really give kudos to Dr. Kristen Neff, NEFF out of Texas, and Dr. Christopher Germer in Massachusetts, who have done some really groundbreaking research on this, and and their work inspired mine. So for me, I define self-compassion as having sort of three practices. And when I say practice, what I mean is a thing you're going to start doing, and you're going to be really bad at it when you start, because that's what it means when we start practicing something new. But if you keep with it over time, it will get easier and you will get better at it. So if the first time you try this, it seems weird or doesn't produce the desired result or whatever, good job. That's exactly what we would expect. You're not doing anything wrong. So the three practices are connection, curiosity, and kindness. And I go through each of these in the book in so much detail. But when I'm talking about connection, what I mean is connecting to those folks in your life, like Margaret's husband, who will respond to you with this really compassionate perspective. But I also mean connecting. I talk about connecting to common humanity, which is a phrase from Kristen Neff, which means just remembering that you're a part of the human race and you're not the only one who. So now when I'm having a rough parenting day, instead of saying to myself, I'm a horrible mother, what I say to myself is parenting is hard for everyone, right? And just that little shift is like, oh, I'm not alone and I'm not the only one who's screwing this up. This is something that's really hard for all of us. And just because something is hard, that doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. It just might be that it's hard. Like parenting is hard no matter how you do it. So that's connection. With curiosity, it's really the opposite of judgment. Instead of looking at a situation and making a judgment call about how badly we've messed it up, can we get curious about what's going on for us, what's going on for our kids, and what we all need? And notice, I didn't use the why question in there. I don't really love the why question in these situations because we can say, well, why did I do that? I don't know. Sometimes I do really dumb things for no clear reason. Sometimes understanding the why is useful. And that's often a great thing to talk to your therapist about. But sometimes understanding the why isn't that helpful. The question is, what do I need? When my daughter was in preschool, we took her and her younger sister to one of those village days where they have the bouncy houses and, you know, you can buy stuff and snacks and whatever. And we spent three hours going on the big inflatable slides and spending $7 so she could, you know, throw an arrow and get a 30 cent toy and all these things. And after a few hours of totally indulging these kids, my daughter had a complete meltdown. And I was like, she is a horrible child. She is so entitled and spoiled and it's all my fault. She's selfish and I've screwed her up and she's just going to be the most self-entitled little spoiled brat ever because of me. Judgment, judgment, judgment. And then somehow for some amazing reason that I cannot tell you why, because I don't know why, my brain switched and I got curious. What's going on? How have we spent the day? Totally forgot to feed the child. She's not doing this because she's a sociopath. She's doing this because she needs a sandwich. And so when you can get curious about a situation, sometimes you can get some really useful answers that all of a sudden completely shift your perspective. Or not. Like you say in the book, and I thought this was really insightful. It's the noticing. It's the being curious 
That is the point, right? Like, huh, there's a second arrow here. I thought there was only one. There's actually two. That's noticing. That's curiosity. You don't have to know what the second arrow is made of, or like you said, how it got there, or why you like to throw them. Just notice that there are two arrows. And curiosity is an inherently kind practice, right? Because it's saying, I care about you enough that I'm interested in what's going on for you. And I'm not scared of what we might find. I can show up and say what's going on. And I don't actually think the answer is that like what's going on is that I am a deeply flawed and broken person who will never do any better. Like I don't actually, when you practice self-compassion, you know, that's not the answer you're going to find. So it feels safer to ask these questions. Now, what I will say is that to the listeners out there who have a trauma history, curiosity can be scary and a little destabilizing. So in that case, stick to connection, stick to kindness. And if you want to do some curiosity work, either do it very present moment oriented where am I? What's going on? What's actually happening? And what do I need in this moment? That kind of present moment curiosity, or go talk to your therapist and do that curiosity work with them on a deeper level in a safe space. And you don't have to be a trauma survivor to do that. Sometimes that's what we all need, right? Yeah, because there are times where your brain takes itself to my child's a psychopath because I'm a bad person. And what you want to really do is be like, we skipped lunch. Being safe in the curiosity allows you to say, that's a bad thought. And if I bring it a little closer in, I can probably say like, wait, weren't she and her friend up all night at that sleepover? That might be what's going on. As you let yourself examine the thought of like, my husband is going to leave me because I'm a selfish, terrible person who doesn't take care of him over our children. It's like, let you know that let it come in a little bit. I might be having a real bad week, actually. I just want to point out how easily all of us can come up with these examples. Ha ha, here's the joke about all the ways we stink. It is so much harder in so many cases for people to come up with the alternate perspective of whatever's going on, which is why I just want to remind folks that this is a practice. It takes time and it will become easier and better. And eventually you will organically find yourself switching to these kinder, more compassionate responses to your difficult moments. But right now, the language so many of us speak completely fluently is the language of explaining all the ways in which we are less than. We're going to switch that to a language of all the ways in which we are part of this human race. We're all struggling. We all have our victories and our graces and our amazing moments. And we all have the moments when we completely screwed up. And you're a great parent with all of it. Being a great parent doesn't mean you're perfect at every moment. And being a great parent, this was another lightning bolt in this book for me. Being a self-compassionate parent doesn't mean being a happy and content parent all the time. You don't, self-compassion is not about making yourself feel better about yourself. Oh, yes. That, this is such an important point, Amy. And it's kind of a subtle one, but it's crucial. Treating yourself with self-compassion is not about making yourself feel better. You don't do it to feel better because again, we can't control our feelings. And sometimes in life, things happen that legitimately feel bad and that it's really okay to feel bad about. We treat ourselves with self-compassion because we're suffering. Sitting with someone, sitting with your child, maybe when they're crying, and it's those moments when you actually somehow magically have the head and heart and body space to be present with a crying child and not say to them, you're fine, pull it together, stop crying, right? Which we all have those moments too, when we have to get out the door and you got to say to your kid, buddy, I need you to pull it together. This is one of those moments. Treating yourself with compassion is showing up for yourself either by saying, it's okay that you're feeling this way, but you got to pull it together and get out the door or saying, hey, you feel horrible. And today's actually a day when the kids are with their grandparents. And so you actually can go to the couch and turn on that movie that you really need to cry over and drink a mug of something warm and yummy and just like treat yourself like 
unwell little person because in this moment you are unwell and self-compassion and self-care aren't self-improvement. Those are two different things. And so you don't need to go grab the parenting book unless you're grabbing mine. Grab mine because it's about self-compassion. Then do. <laughs> then definitely do. Definitely definitely grab mine. No, but you don't need to grab the parenting book or call the expert to try to solve this problem right now. You got this first arrow wound and you just need a little tenderness. You need a little care and that's okay. And to the parents out there who are like, yeah, I don't have that day. I don't even have that hour when my kids are out of the house and I can do this. I say, yeah. And that's when, again, instead of blaming yourself, yet another opportunity for self-compassion. My mom would call those hot bath problems. She's like, just take a hot bath. That's all you can do. It's a hot bath problem. Oh my gosh. I love your mom. (laughs) Yeah. She was also an MSW. She was great. She really knew what she was talking about. (laughs) And we all have those moments when there's, there's no fix. There's no solution. And all we can do is like, what is the support or comfort? For me, it's like a kitty in my lap problem. I just need like five minutes with my cat in my lap. And then I can marshal kind of the internal resources to get up and deal with it. Yeah, I love that hot bath moment. I'm going to like (laughs) hat tip Margaret's mom. That's amazing. We've been talking to Carla Nomberg. Her new book is You Are Not a Parent, How to Practice Self-Compassion and Give Yourself a Break. Carla, tell our listeners everywhere that they can find you. I am online at CarlaNomberg.com. You can also hang out with me on Facebook or Instagram. We will put links to everywhere you can find Carla and her books, plural. Carla, thanks so much for talking to us today. This was a great conversation. Yeah, I love this. I really enjoyed this. And thank you all so much for everything you do on behalf of parents. We're very lucky to have your voices in our ears. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. 
you get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.